Chapter Nine of Jill the Reckless by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. Jill in Search of an Uncle. One. New York welcomed Jill as she came out of the Pennsylvania station in Seventh Avenue with a whirl of powdered snow that touched her cheek like a kiss, the cold, bracing kiss one would expect from this vivid city. She stood at the station entrance, a tiny figure beside the huge pillars, looking round her with eager eyes. A wind was whipping down the avenue. The sky was a clear, brilliant tint of the brightest blue. Energy was in the air, and hopefulness— she wondered if mr elmer mariner ever came to new york it was hard to see how even his gloom would contrive to remain unaffected by the exhilaration of the place she took uncle chris's letter from her bag he had written from an address on east fifty-seventh street there would be just time to catch him before he went out to lunch she hailed a taxicab which was coming out of the station it was a slow ride halted repeatedly by congestion of the traffic but a short one for jill she was surprised at herself a londoner of long standing for feeling so provincial and being so impressed but london was far away it belonged to a life that seemed years ago and a world from which she had parted forever moreover this was undeniably a stupendous city through which her taxicab was carrying her at times square the stream of the traffic plunged into a whirlpool, swinging out of Broadway to meet the rapids which poured in from east, west, and north. On Fifth Avenue all the motor-cars in the world were gathered together. On the pavements pedestrians, muffled against the nipping chill of the crisp air, hurried to and fro. And above, that sapphire sky spread a rich velvet curtain which made the tops of the buildings stand out like the white minarets of some eastern city of romance. The cab drew up in front of a stone apartment house, and Jill, getting out, passed under an awning through a sort of medieval courtyard, gay with potted shrubs, to an inner door. She was impressed. Evidently the tales one heard of fortunes accumulated overnight in this magic city were true, and one of them must have fallen to the lot of Uncle Chris. For nobody to whom money was a concern could possibly afford to live in a place like this. If Croesus and the Count of Monte Cristo had applied for lodging there, the authorities would probably have looked at them a little doubtfully at first, and hinted at the desirability of a month's rent in advance. In a glass case behind the inner door, reading a newspaper and chewing gum, sat a dignified old man in the rich uniform of a general in the Guatemalan army. He was a brilliant spectacle. He wore no jewelry, but this, no doubt, was due to a private distaste for display as there was no one else of humbler rank at hand from whom jill could solicit an introduction and the privilege of an audience she took the bold step of addressing him directly i want to see major selby please the guatemalan general arrested for a moment the rhythmic action of his jaws lowered his paper and looked at her with raised eyebrows at first jill thought that he was registering haughty contempt then she saw what she had taken for scorn was surprise major selby major selby no major selby living here major christopher selby not here said the associate of ambassadors and the pampered pet of guatemala's proudest beauties never heard of him in my life two 
Jill had read works of fiction in which at certain crises everything had seemed to swim in front of the heroine's eyes, but never till this moment had she experienced that remarkable sensation herself. The savior of Guatemala did not actually swim, perhaps, but he certainly flickered. She had to blink to restore his prismatic outlines to their proper sharpness. Already the bustle and noise of New York had begun to induce in her that dizzy condition of unreality which one feels in dreams, and this extraordinary statement added the finishing touch. Perhaps the fact that she had said please to him when she opened the conversation touched the heart of the hero of a thousand revolutions. Dignified and beautiful as he was to the eye of the stranger, it is unpleasant to have to record that he lived in a world which rather neglected the minor courtesies of speech. People did not often say please to him, here, hi, and gosh darn you, yes, but seldom please. He seemed to approve of Jill, for he shifted his chewing gum to a position which facilitated speech and began to be helpful. What was the name again? Selby. How'd you spell it? S-E-L-B-Y. S-E-L-B-Y. Oh, Selby? Yes, Selby. What was the first name? Christopher. Christopher? Yes, Christopher. Christopher Selby? No one of that name living here. But there must be. The veteran shook his head with an indulgent smile. You want Mr. Sipperly, he said tolerantly. In Guatemala these mistakes are always happening. Mr. George Sipperly. He's on the fourth floor. What name shall I say? He had almost reached the telephone when Jill stopped him. This is an age of just as good substitutes, but she refused to accept any unknown Sipperly as a satisfactory alternative for Uncle Chris. I don't want Mr. Sipperly. I want Major Selby. How'd you spell it once more? S-E-L-B-Y. S-E-L-B-Y. No one of that name living here. Mr. Sipperly, he spoke in a wheedling voice, as if determined in spite of himself to make Jill see what was in her best interest. Mr. Sipperly's on the fourth floor. Gentleman in the real estate business, he added insinuatingly. He's got blonde hair and a Boston bulldog. He may be all you say, and he may have a dozen bulldogs. Only one. Jack's his name is. But he isn't the right man. It's absurd. Major Selby wrote to me from this address. This is 18 East 57th Street. This is 18 East 57th Street, conceded the other cautiously. I've got this letter here. She opened her bag and gave an exclamation of dismay. It's gone. Mr. Sipperly used to have a friend staying with him last fall, a Mr. Robertson, dark complexion man with a mustache. I took it out to look at the address. I was sure I put it back. I must have dropped it. There's a Mr. Rainsby on the seventh floor. He's a broker down on Wall Street, short man with an impediment in his speech. Jill snapped the clasp of her bag. Never mind, she said. I must have made a mistake. I was quite sure this was the address, but it evidently isn't. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry to have bothered you. She walked away, leaving the terror of Paraguay and all points west speechless, for people who said thank you so much to him were even rarer than those who said please. He followed her with an affectionate eye till she was out of sight, then, restoring his chewing-gum to circulation, returned to the perusal of his paper. A momentary suggestion presented itself to his mind that what Jill had really wanted was Mr. Willoughby on the eighth floor, but it was too late to say so now, and soon, becoming absorbed in the narrative of a spirited householder in Kansas who had run amuck with a hatchet and slain six, he dismissed the matter from his mind. Three. 
Jill walked back to Fifth Avenue, crossed it, and made her way thoughtfully along the breezy street, which, flanked on one side by the park and on the other by the green-roofed Plaza Hotel and the apartment houses of the wealthy, ends in the humbler and more democratic spaces of Columbus Circle. She perceived that she was in that position, familiar to melodrama, of being alone in a great city. The reflection brought with it a certain discomfort. The bag that dangled from her wrist contained all the money she had in the world, the very broken remains of the twenty dollars which Uncle Chris had sent her at Brookport. She had nowhere to go, nowhere to sleep, and no immediate obvious means of adding to her capital. It was a situation which she had not foreseen when she set out to walk to Brookport Station. She pondered over the mystery of Uncle Chris's disappearance and found no solution. The thing was inexplicable. She was as sure of the address he had given in his letter as she was of anything in the world. Yet at that address nothing had been heard of him. His name was not even known. These were deeper waters than Jill was able to fathom. She walked on aimlessly. Presently she came to Columbus Circle, and, crossing Broadway at the point where that street breaks out into an eruption of automobile shops, she found herself suddenly hungry opposite a restaurant whose entire front was a sheet of plate glass. On the other side of this glass, at marble-topped tables, apparently careless of their total lack of privacy, sat the impecunious, lunching, their every mouthful a spectacle for the passer-by. It reminded Jill of looking at fishes in an aquarium. In the centre of the window, gazing out in a distrait manner over piles of apples and grapefruit, a white-robed ministrant at a stove juggled ceaselessly with buckwheat cakes. He struck the final note in the candidness of the establishment, a priest whose ritual contained no mysteries. Spectators with sufficient time on their hands to permit them to stand and watch were enabled to witness a New York midday meal in every stage of its career, from its protoplasmic beginnings as a stream of yellowish-white liquid poured on top of the stove, to its ultimate nirvana in the interior of the luncher in the form of an appetizing cake. It was a spectacle which no hungry girl could resist. Jill went in, and as she made her way among the tables, a voice spoke her name. "'Miss Mariner?' Jill jumped, and thought for a moment the thing must have been an hallucination. It was impossible that anybody in the place should have called her name. Except for Uncle Chris, wherever he might be, she knew no one in New York. Then the voice spoke again, competing valiantly with a clatter of crockery so uproarious as to be more like something solid than a mere sound. "'I couldn't believe it was you!' A girl in blue had risen from the nearest table and was staring at her in astonishment. Jill recognized her instantly. Those big, pathetic eyes, like a lost child's, were unmistakable. It was the parrot girl, the girl whom she and Freddie Rook had found in the drawing-room at Ovingdon Square that afternoon when the foundations of the world had given away and chaos had begun. "'Good gracious!' cried Jill. "'I thought you were in London!' The feeling of emptiness and panic the result of her interview with the Guatemalan general at the apartment-house vanished magically. She sat down at this unexpected friend's table with a light heart. "'Whatever are you doing in New York?' asked the girl. "'I never knew you meant to come over.' "'It was a little sudden. Still, here I am, and I'm starving. What are those things you're eating?' "'Buckwheat cakes.' "'Oh, yes. I remember Uncle Chris talking about them on the boat. I'll have some.' "'But when did you come over?' "'I landed about ten days ago.' I've been down at a place called Brookport on Long Island. How funny running into you like this. I was surprised that you remembered me. I've forgotten your name, admitted Jill frankly, but that's nothing. I always forget names. 
"'My name's Nellie Bryant.' "'Of course, and you're on the stage, aren't you?' "'Yes, I've just got work at Goble and Cone. "'Hello, Phil.' A young man with a lithe figure and smooth black hair brushed straight back from his forehead had paused at the table on his way to the cashier's desk. "'Hello, Nellie.' "'I didn't know you lunched here.' don't often been rehearsing with joe up at the century roof and had a quarter of an hour to get a bite can i sit down sure this is my friend miss mariner the young man shook hands with jill flashing an approving glance at her out of his dark restless eyes pleased to meet you this is phil brown said nelly he plays the straight for joe widgeon they're the best jazz and hokum team on the keith circuit oh hush said mr brown modestly you always were a great little booster nelly well you know you are weren't you held over at the palace last time well then that's true admitted the young man maybe we didn't ghoul em eh stop me in the street and ask me only eighteen bows second house saturday jill was listening fascinated i can't understand a word she said it's like another language you're from the other side aren't you asked mr brown she only landed a week ago said nelly i thought so from the accent said mr brown so our talk sort of goes over the top does it well you'll learn american soon if you stick around i've learned some already said jill the relief of meeting nelly had made her feel very happy she liked this smooth-haired young man a man on the train this morning said to me would you care for the morning paper sister i said no thanks brother i want to look out of the window and think you meet a lot of fresh guys on trains commented mr brown austerely you want to give em the cold storage eye he turned to nelly did you go down to ike as i told you yes did you cop yes i never felt so happy in my life i'd waited over an hour on that landing of theirs and then johnny miller came along and i yelled in his ear that i was after work and he told me it would be all right he's awfully good to girls who've worked in shows for him before if it hadn't been for him i might have been waiting there still who inquired jill anxious to be abreast of the conversation is ike mr goble where i've just got work goble and cone you know i've never heard of them the young man extended his hand put it there he said they never heard of me at least the fellow i saw when i went down to the office hadn't can you beat it oh did you go down there too asked nelly sure joe wanted to get in another show on broadway he'd sort of got tired of vaudeville say i don't want to scare you nelly but if you ask me that show they're putting out down there is a citron i don't think ike's got a cent of his own money in it my belief is that he's running it for a lot of amateurs why say listen joe and i blow in there to see if there's anything for us and there's a tall guy in tortoiseshell cheaters sitting in ike's office said he was the author and was engaging the principals we told him who we were and it didn't make any hit with him at all he said he had never heard of us and when we explained he said no there wasn't going to be any of our sort of work in the show said he was making an effort to give the public something rather better than the usual sort of thing no specialties required he said it was an effort to restore the gilbert and sullivan tradition say who are these gilbert and sullivan guys anyway they get written up in the papers all the time and i never met anyone who'd run across them if you want my opinion that show down there is a comic opera for heaven's sake nelly had the musical comedy performer's horror of the older established form of entertainment why comic opera died in the year one well these guys are going to dig it up that's the way it looks to me he lowered his voice say i saw clarice last night he said in a confidential undertone it's all right it is we've made it up it was like this his conversation took an intimate turn 
he expounded for nelly's benefit the inner history with all its ramifications of a recent unfortunate rift between himself and the best little girl in flatbush what he had said what she had said what her sister had said and how it all came right in the end jill might have felt a little excluded but for the fact that a sudden and exciting idea had come to her she sat back thinking after all what else was she to do she must do something she bent forward and interrupted mr brown in his description of a brisk passage of arms between himself and the best little girl's sister who seemed to be an unpleasant sort of person in every way mr brown hello do you think there would be any chance for me if i asked for work at goble and cohn's you're joking cried nelly i'm not at all well what do you want with work i've got to find some and right away too i don't understand jill hesitated she disliked discussing her private affairs but there was obviously no way of avoiding it nelly was round-eyed and mystified and mr brown had manifestly no intention whatever of withdrawing tactfully he wanted to hear all i've lost all my money said jill lost your money do you mean i've lost it all every penny i had in the world tough interpolated mr brown judicially i was broke once way out in a tank town in oklahoma the manager skipped out with our salaries last we saw of him he was doing the trip to canada and nothing flat but how gasped nelly it happened about the time we met in london do you remember freddie rook who was at our house that afternoon a dreamy look came into nelly's eyes there had not been an hour since their parting when she had not thought of that immaculate sportsman it would have amazed freddie could he have known but to nelly bryant he was the one perfect man in an imperfect world do i she sighed ecstatically mr brown shot a keen glance at her aha he cried facetiously who is he nelly who is this blue-eyed boy if you want to know said nelly defiance in her tone he's the fellow who gave me fifty pounds with no strings tied to it get that when i was broke in london if it hadn't been for him i'd be there still did he cried jill freddy yes oh gee nelly sighed once more i suppose i'll never see him again in this world introduce me to him if you do said mr brown he sounds just the sort of little pal i'd like to have you remember hearing freddie say something about losing money in a slump on the stock exchange proceeded jill well that was how i lost mine it's a long story and it's not worth talking about but that's how things stand and i've got to find work of some sort and it looks to me as if i should have a better chance of finding it on the stage than anywhere else i'm terribly sorry oh it's all right how much would these people goble and cohn give to me if i got an engagement only forty a week forty dollars a week it's wealth where are they over at the gotham theatre on forty-second street i'll go there at once but you'll hate it you don't realize what it's like you wait hours and hours and nobody sees you why shouldn't i walk straight in and say that i've come for work nelly's eyes grew bigger but you couldn't why not why you couldn't i don't see why mr brown intervened with decision you're dead right he said to jill approvingly if you ask me that's the only sensible thing to do where's the sense of hanging around and getting stalled managers are human guys some of them probably if you were to try it they'd appreciate a bit of gall it should show em you've got pep you go down there and try walking straight in they can't eat you it makes me sick when i see all those poor devils hanging about outside those offices waiting to get noticed and nobody ever paying any attention to them you push the office boy in the face if he tries to stop you and go in and make him take notice 
and whatever you do don't leave your name and address that's the old moth-eaten gag they're sure to try to pull on you tell em there's nothing doing say you're out for a quick decision stand em on their heads jill got up fired by this eloquence she called for her check good-bye she said i'm going to do exactly as you say where can i find you afterwards she said to nelly you aren't really going i am nelly scribbled on a piece of paper here's my address i'll be in all evening i'll come and see you good-bye mr brown and thank you you're welcome said mr brown nelly watched jill depart with wide eyes why did you tell her to do that she said why not said mr brown i started something didn't i well i guess i'll have to be leaving too got to get back to rehearsal say i like that friend of yours nelly there's no yellow streak about her i wish her luck end of chapter nine read by don w jenkins Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com.